six years. Uh, my notes tell me that in January 14th of 2017, I had the great privilege to be with you then to dedicate Calvin. So it's good to be with you at the ends of congregation. And then it dawns on me as I was preparing for this particular Sunday that I've known your pastor for nearly half of his life. And uh, that is amazing to me how much the time has gone by. When Paul writes to uh, younger pastor Timothy, and when you see the love that Paul has for Timothy, and even refers to him as a spiritual son, in many ways, that's how I view your pastor. And yet I must confess, over the last few years, um, as he has just continued to grow as a leader and as a pastor, I look at him much more as a colleague than as a son. I'm so proud of the work that he's done. And uh, he is an amazing pastor. Uh, count yourself blessed. I hope that you often encourage him and that you pray for him. He takes the work that he does up here very seriously, and he is a man of God that is uh, doing the work of the kingdom. So pray for your pastor on a continual basis. I'm so appreciative that you record your sermons. So I've been able to kind of follow this journey with you, and uh, Kevin's taking you on a great journey in the book of Acts. We find ourselves now in Acts chapter 6. I hope you have a Bible that you can turn with me. We're looking at the first seven verses of it, and the scripture says this. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Arminius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles and prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The scripture begins for us, Acts chapter 6, with our author Luke saying that in those days, that's an interesting phrase for me, let me remind you what those days were. In the days in which Jesus had just recently resurrected from the dead, those are the days we're talking about. In those days in which a group of disciples that had given their lives to follow Jesus were now trying to figure out who their identity was, it was in those days. In fact, in those days, this was the beginning of a new era in which the Holy Spirit was now poured out on not just a few individuals, but on everyone that calls on the name of the Lord. And keep in mind, it's in those days in which there's a transition that takes place. A time that now the law is fulfilled. And now a time in which um, a, a new way of understanding grace and access to God is being introduced. It's in those days. It's in those days, then, that as a new gospel of Jesus' resurrection has come about, and good news in him, that the church faces extreme persecution. Your pastor's been talking to you about how they were imprisoned, and of course, at, at one point, after being beaten and told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, they rejoiced for taking on those beatings for the sake of Christ. And it's in those days 
that Acts says the church was increasing, that the number of disciples was growing. I just want to remind us that it seems like when we look at church history, when the church faces persecution, when the gospel costs us something, when we find ourselves truly needing to defend our faith, that, that rather than the church powering back and losing momentum, it's in those times that the church actually increases. That when it costs us something, and that when it gets harder to follow through the gospel, the Lord blesses that effort as the faithful continue to serve. And the church, in this instance, it increases. It grows. Now, I, I just got to tell you, we have to caution ourselves not to put too much stock on just simple numerical growth. There's been more than one great leader, there's more than one pastor that's gotten so um, focused on increase in attendance and on numerical growth that's actually sabotaged the ministry that they're doing. We know this. People can fill buildings. Events can take place that can draw crowds. When we get so focused on just numbers for the sake of numbers, we get distracted of what's really taking place. Uh, we must be cautious that the kind of growth that we're seeking is not just to, to try to steal a sheep from other congregations to bring them in, that we're not just uh, having big numbers and events to feel good about ourselves, but the increase is truly an increase of people knowing about the good news of Jesus and growing in their faith and coming to a saving realization of who he is. The beautiful thing that we're seeing in this passage of Scripture is that's what's happening. That people are coming to understand Christ in a new way. This increase, we see it throughout the Scriptures. In fact, we're introduced to it when the Holy Spirit comes on Peter. You remember that great day of Pentecost that you talked about, where 3,000 come to a saving knowledge of Jesus in that day. Then we come to the next chapter, and Luke reports for us in Acts chapter 4 that they ate together on a regular basis, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the prayer, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord was blessing the work that they were doing. But here's what we also know. As a good work is increasing, and as churches are getting strengthened and encouraged, oftentimes that's when the church faces great scrutiny. That's often when the church comes under attack from him. He doesn't want to see a church succeed. He doesn't want to see a church grow and have significant days up ahead for it. And we find the situation here, that there is potential in Acts chapter 6 for a great split to take place for a divide to happen. You and I have heard of all sorts of churches that have split, and, and sometimes it's over ridiculous things. What color of paint to paint a wall, of, of what color carpet to have in a building, some things that are really ridiculous. And then there's other things that maybe are not quite as ridiculous, things that churches have fought over, that they've split over, but whether to have choruses or hymns, whether to have pianos or guitars lead, and these things can be very divisive, but even more significantly, Divisions can take place over how do we interpret passages of Scripture, what's our theological bent, even to issues that the society would say, yes, that we embrace this, but the followers of Christ say, well, we can't exactly say that this is something that we're going to do. And splits have taken place, and great churches have fallen apart. And in my opinion, this has great potential in Acts chapter 6. Here's the issue that we see in Acts 6. The issue becomes, as things are increasing... And the influence of the church grows greater. There is some disciples that look at social justice. And they say, we have a group of widows that's being neglected in the daily distribution of food. 
And it doesn't seem right to us. Well, you have another group that says, yes, but there are spiritual needs we're trying to meet. And so in order to focus on those spiritual needs, we want to devote ourselves to prayer, to studying the scriptures, and to preaching the word. And so there's a group that says, no, physical needs are more important, and another group that says spiritual needs are more important. And they're in this dilemma. Which is the most important? Where do we go from here? Now let me just say this. When we come to the issue of widows, and we find this subject here in the book of Acts, but we find that God is particularly fond of widows. This is a theme throughout Scripture. In fact, I love Psalm 68. Psalm 68 says this, that God is a father to the fatherless, and he is defender of the widows. That there is a very strict call in Exodus chapter 22, where God hears from Moses, and God gives some very great warnings to Moses to say to the people, don't mistreat the orphans and the widows, because I hear their cries, and I will avenge for them. And of course, we know that Paul writes to Timothy in that great book, uh, the writings of pastoral letters, and he says, these are specific outlines of what to do for widows, how to take care of them. And James, who we could really identify as the head of the church, even writes in his wonderful letter that says that the true gospel the kind that pleases God is the one that looks after orphans and widows. This is the kind that pleases the Lord. So we understand what they're talking about. But I was reminded, I had an opportunity several years ago to take a group of students in Nashville, Tennessee on a mission trip. We were kind of in one of those Bible buckle belt areas of the United States. Now, I don't want to cast any shame towards the South. So if you're uh, from the South, uh, I'm not picking on you right now, but I was amazed at how many soup kitchens there were in Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, truly, if you live in Nashville and you're hungry, there's no good reason for you to be hungry. They're on every corner. Now, I can remember going into an orientation where we were going into this massive facility that had a, a significant kitchen, and they had a goal to feed uh, over a 1,000 people each month for both breakfast and lunch. We happened to go on the lunch crew, and they assigned us specific spots. They put the gloves on us, they put the, the headgear on us, and they put us in these spots. They said, you're in charge of this particular food, and you're in charge of this food. And they were very clear to us to say, when the tray comes and it's put right before you, you quickly distribute whatever food you're in charge of in your little section and pass it on. Don't make eye contact with anybody. Don't, certainly don't talk to anyone. Our goal is to get as many people through as we can because there's only so much seating and a lot of people come. And so you can imagine for an hour, we saw so many trays go through, hardly ever looked up at any individual, and all these trays went through. Finally, we get near the end, and I decided to be a little bit of a rebel. So I broke off from the crowd because it looked like they had it handled, and I was interested in the clients that we were serving. Wasn't supposed to go talk to anyone, wasn't supposed to go sit down with anyone, but I figured, I'm going to leave soon anyway, so what's the worst they can do to me? I sat down with a group of men and just asked them a question about how it was going and, and what they thought. Now, I had taken a little bit of pride in myself that we were a part of this group that fed so many individuals that morning, and this is what surprised me. I asked them, I said, there seems to be a lot of soup kitchens here in Nashville. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And they said, you know, the thing about the Christians in this area is they really do seem concerned about meeting our needs physically. But all these soup kitchens are all the same. No one ever looks us in the eye. No one ever asks us 
our story. And as soon as they beat us, they kick us right back out on the street and never do any kind of follow-up. And the one man said, what I really feel like is I'm just a number to them. I'm not really a person. My heart kind of broke in that moment. Because at some point we kind of lost our bearings of why we were doing it. And the church felt good about themselves because they said, we're feeding over a thousand people each month. And yet no significant care was taken of their heart. Uh, I had another young friend. He was uh, going off to Northwest Nazarene University there in Nampa. He was about three months into being there, and I, I saw him. We met for lunch, and I said, Tyler, how's it going? Tell me a little bit about your experience here at NMU. And he said, you know, I love the campus. I love the things that are taking place here. But he said, honestly, my biggest problem is discerning what's the best thing for me to be doing. Now, here's a young man that really loved the Lord, that really wanted to grow in his faith. And he said, when he first went there as a freshman, that first weekend of freshman orientation, they had tables lined up at the student center of ministry opportunities and volunteers that were looking to recruit freshmen to be a part of the ministry. He quickly learned that he could be involved in all sorts of things. There was after-school tutoring that they gave to elementary school kids, if that was kind of thing that you want to do. Not too far outside of Nampa is a place called Hope House, which is kind of an orphanage for kids that you can be involved in that. There was places and opportunities to go to the elderly homes to, to work with senior citizens. There was Bible studies. There was all sorts of worship services. And he said, I tried to do it all. I tried to get involved as much as I could. And he said, I reached this point where I just got burned out. And he said, my hardest thing for me to discern was what was the best thing to do because there were so many good things to do? And I really think this is a question that the book of Acts has in chapter 6. What's the best thing for us to do? They could have gotten divided. The ones that were really for social justice and the widows could have said, we're going to take all of our toys and go home. And what we're going to do is we're going to go across the road and start our own church. And everyone's going to come to our church because we are really doing God's work. And there could have been those that were more about the spiritual needs of the people that said, no, we're not going to go for that. And, and, and we're going to go off and we're going to pray and say the scripture and we're more spiritual. So the Lord's going to bless us. And they could have been divided. And they could have had two different churches. But we're so glad they didn't. They came together and said, rather than choosing one or the other, let's really determine what's the best for us to do. And in their minds, they said, let's choose seven. Seven that will really focus on meeting the needs of widows. And let's have them focus on meeting that particular need. You know what's fascinating to me? Is when they chose the seven that were going to really focus in on the widows, they did not say, who's the best cook among us? Who makes the best apple pie? Who can put on the best roast for everyone to eat? They didn't look at that. They didn't even look at management skills. They didn't say, who really can administrate and delegate so make sure we're on the right regimented schedule? They didn't look at those two things. What's fascinating to me is that, according to the book of Acts, the only two criteria they looked at to decide who's best qualified to meet the needs of widows is people full of the Holy Spirit and of faith i got to tell you, I've been wrestling in my mind for several days now. What would happen in the life of Woodland Friends Church? What would happen in the life of my own church if we put, just trying to put people in positions because of the qualifications that we think that they have? 
Rather than looking at the external components to say, well, we think because of their background, they'd be a good fit for here. Well, what if the ministries of Woodland Friends, of our churches, would just simply look and say, what we're looking for is two qualifications to serve in this church. We're looking for people full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And so let's just free those people. We believe the Lord has put on our hearts ministry. We believe there's some direction He's called us to do. And rather than us discerning what it is, let's just find those types of people that are full of the Holy Spirit, that are full of faith. You see that the first person they chose was Stephen. Truthfully, I kind of scratched my head on that one. Because Stephen really was a talented man. That, uh, as Scripture would tell us later, I don't want to steal too much of Kevin's thunder down the road, but he focused really on the widows, but here was a tremendous preacher. And you'll find that in the book of Acts chapter 7. Here was a man that really should have been qualified to meet the spiritual needs, not the physical needs. But how is he characterized? As a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. I, I hope this. I hope that as a church, you are discerning what... What is God calling me to do? This is a great example to us, that when the people are put in the right positions to serve, God can do great things. That, there's the beauty about what we're seeing in the scriptures over and over again. I appreciate that passage that was read earlier today of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, that passage in Romans chapter 12, Paul gives us this great analogy to remind us that the body of Christ was indeed designed to be a body. That, that no one was intended to hold all of the pieces and parts all to themselves. That is, it should never hinge on one person or one personality. Some of us were called to be hands. Some were called to be feet. Some were called to be eyes. Some were called to be nose. Some are called to be ears. And only as we work together and decide and determine which our gifts are, only then is the body of Christ complete. What's tragic is that if I really have a gifting, and we all do, we all have a part to play, some more significant than others. Some maybe are, are seen more up front than others. But here's the tragedy. When I know what gift I have, and I choose not to serve, I'm not simply hurting myself alone, but now the rest of the body is incomplete. But all of us suffer then in those places where we aren't fully engaged in what's going on. I think this is a great example to us, too. There are certain things tasked for those that are meeting the spiritual needs. Again, when I think about your pastor, I hope this, that you're utilizing him to really focus on what he's supposed to be focusing on. According to this passage here, his primary task should be that of prayer, of studying the scripture, and preaching the word. You don't want your pastor to get bogged down with, with shoveling snow in the winter, of mowing lawns in the summer. You don't want him to get so focused on vacuuming the floors that now secondary is what his primary role is. Now, I'm not advocating that uh, Pastor Kevin spends all of his time tucked away in some office, never exposed to any kind of servant leadership. But I do want to caution both him and you. Be careful of how he spends his time. His primary function would be of these three things. Here's the beauty of chapter 6 in my mind. A crisis was averted. No split needed to take place. But the beauty that we see here is when people understood what their roles were, and as they followed the Holy Spirit, do you see what happens at the very end? That the number of disciples increased rapidly. And a large number of people became obedient to the faith. Rather than bickering with each other, rather than fighting with one another, they said, we understand that both are important. And we're choosing for each person to follow out after the best. And as we follow after the best, the Lord honors that work. Can I pray with you for a moment? Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture and Acts. Thank you for the reminder 
that God, you call all of us, that we each have a role to play. Thank you that this church did not have to suffer a split, but instead it just continued to grow and increase. I pray over Woodland Friends Church that, Father, you would allow them to see and determine people that are not necessarily qualified on the outside external appearance of what uh, we would judge as, but rather people full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit would be freed to serve and to do ministry. Lord, bless this great congregation, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen.